There are some stories that stop us in our tracks, that make us forget our own dramas and traumas long enough to feel into someone else's experience. My guest today is Anna Jones, and she has exactly that kind of story. But before we dive in, I do want to offer a word of warning. Anna and I are going to be talking about some heavy stuff today, specifically suicide, specifically racism. And if for whatever reason, that is not a good thing for you to be listening to today, take care of your heart, do what you need to do, and go with my blessing, of course. But if you can join us, I would love for you to meet Anna Jones. Anna is the founder of Flex 65, which is a labor market for caregivers of adult, older adults. And it's the first of its kind to use technology as a hiring platform for caregivers, kind of like an Uber for caregiving. And for those of us who've been through that process with our elderly parents or loved ones, that's kind of a huge breakthrough concept. But we're actually not here today to talk about Anna as an entrepreneur, though she is. We are here to talk about Anna as an activist as the mother of two black sons, as someone working to reshape the way we teach history in our schools. Anna lost her son, Masai Jones, to suicide on June 14th, 2018, an event that would leave most of us catatonic and incapacitated. But Anna's story is hardly one of withdrawal. Her story is about transmuting pain into power, about carrying on her son's story, because Maasai's story has the power to create change. And friends, if there is anything we learned in 2020, it was this, things need to change. I first heard Anna's story during a Village Well session. And if you don't know My Village Well, please Google My Village Well San Jose, Michelle Walsh. It's an incredible Saturday morning spiritual practice that I took up during the pandemic and I just, I can't recommend it enough. But anyway, Michelle had Anna on to speak. And I heard her story and I thought, oh my God, I need to have her on this show to talk with you. So why don't I just stop talking and let Anna take the mic. Friends, meet the marvelous Anna Jones. Tell us about the day you lost your son. Take us back to that day. It was a beautiful summer morning and I just uh, remember that I love summers, you know, I Absolutely love the hot weather, you know, uh, warm weather, the warmth, the just the joy of being outside, you know, and I could hear the birds outside my window and heard car doors slam, you know, just multiple doors slamming. And I said, oh, the neighbors probably, you know, have quite a number of visitors, you know, and it's before eight o'clock in the morning and his dad comes running upstairs to tell me to tell me that he found him. Yeah, because that it was looking for him. And I said, he's in the house somewhere. You know, the last I saw was the night before. And the way he brought it out to me was I found him and he couldn't speak and he was breathing and crying at the same time. And I knew that something was wrong. I knew immediately as I jumped up and ran out the back door that he couldn't be telling me something and crying and breathing. And he was in shock. And I was, I ran. I knew I had to save him. I knew that as a mother, I was going to save my child. Yes. And when I came to the back door, 
there were just so many offices. I think I had to count. I don't know how many, but there had to be a dozen or over a dozen police offices in the backyard. Oh, my and, gosh. Yes. And I ran towards the group of officers. And then they and some of them tried to stop me. And that's when everyone turned. And when they turned, I saw just a bit of his blue shirt. And I said, they couldn't be standing there if, and they couldn't be surrounding him if he was alive. And everyone tried to run to me. And my son made it to me. My other son made it to me first. And I started screaming and I started crying, said, because I said, no, it couldn't be my son, not my son. It couldn't be him. He couldn't do this because I was very close to him in a sense. But this part of him that he did not share with me. Yeah. So tell me about him. Tell me what he was like and what his personality was like, what his life had been like up to that moment. He was an older son who set the pace for his brother and for him. A very talented, very gifted gymnast. He was a gymnast, a level 10 gymnast by the time he had ended his gymnastics career just, you know, four years prior. He was someone who was always at the top of his class in the public school system and just a gifted, gifted writer. In third grade, you know, he could uh, tell, write a story, three or four pages, and all his classmates are only sending out one page or two. <laughs> and loved, loved to read, loved to read, loved to write, loved music. Just a well-rounded, balanced human, I would mm-hmm. say. And um, as a mother of a Black son or two Black sons, both raised in the Valley here, there isn't much exposure to the Black culture or the or to the people. And their circles were mostly white friends and peers. Mm-hmm. Our neighbors were white. The uh, gymnastics family uh, that we did gymnastics with for over eight to 10 years were all, you know, Caucasian. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and the school that we sent him to in high school, you know, it's predominantly white. And we knew we had to prepare our sons for the world. This is what we gave them. This is what the opportunities that we provided for them to explore the math clubs, the chess clubs, the reading clubs, the spelling bees and piano recitals. And he was the light of any party, of any room, any gathering, you'd hear laughter all the time. Every time he'd come in, you know, and uh, he wasn't that tall. He was uh, built to be a gymnast and, you know, training to be, you know, a gymnast on the national scene in addition to balancing schoolwork. Did he ever talk about what it was like to be himself in that white, like mostly white-centric environment. Did he talk about what that experience was like, the good and the bad? Yes, he did recognize that as he was entering, uh, leaving middle school and entering uh, the uh, high school, especially Mm -hmm. the high school. Mm -hmm. 
the middle school was what's his uh, title three schools and he had chosen that you know and uh, we said okay you chose your middle school and which was more diverse but then the high school we're going to prepare you for the world we're going to make sure that you are able to compete on the national level mm-hmm. when you enter college and he was just so gifted that way he knew what he wanted he went and got it he chose his own colleges you know this is a child that applied to nine universities across the states and got into eight of them and found the highest scholarship he could get you know and uh, took it you know and chose his own college and went into honors college and was a gift and a lot of the professors um, you know said he was a gift to them the two years that they had him was left a profound effect, not only on the department, the English department at Hofstra. Yeah. Wow. But in the meantime, it was both, both two seemingly opposite things were true inside of him. It sounded like it was, he was flourishing and thriving and shining in this environment, being authentic and wholly himself But at the same time, he was grappling with some realizations. Talk about some of the poetry that he wrote while he was still in high school about the experience of being a Black boy in a predominantly white high school. Yes. You have someone who has read and grasped racism at such an early age. He understood and I uh, didn't, my experiences is uh, quite different from his. Mm. And uh, he totally understood what it was like to be in his skin. Yeah. And to be, and he understood the inequality, mm. the injustice, you know, and he would have, he was someone who was having conversations with adults mm. in middle school about some of the heavier topics, you know, you talk about religion, you talk about politics, and you talk about race. Mm -hmm. Race to him was something that he wrote about, was something that he, as he entered college, he started to really dive into the meaning, or he was being what we term as woke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was and he he wrote about that in high school. You know, he started to write it in high school and saw that, you know, they skimmed over uh, different topics, you know, when it came to slavery, when it came to that part of history. And here was a progressive school in the heart of Silicon Valley that still the system did not recognize that there was things that everyone had to explore. He was the only African American in that wow. in that group. Yeah. Wow. And 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 it wasn't new for him, you know, both my sons always, you know, knew that they would be the only ones in their circles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was written in a response to a social justice theme that mm-hmm. the school wanted to explore the following year. And one of the faculty, his writing uh, teachers had asked him, can you uh, write something that we can share with the faculty? The things that will never happen was penned in 2016 by Masai stares from across the room, never been more aware that they're white and I'm maroon, 
jokes aside, I'm not human, not even partially. White Spartans are the warriors, but Black Africans are the tragedy. No lessons were taught to me that to tell me that I'm different. It's something we all know, but don't admit. When the teacher mentions slavery, classmates take a look back to check. Is it okay with me? What would happen if it wasn't? I'm a little curious. Would you stand besides me if I said that enough was enough? If I mentioned that it's tragic that we need an African History Month because black and white history should be taught as one bunch or that there's more blacks out there than MLK and Malcolm X and that it's insane that because we made peanut butter, you should show respects for one day of one month. It's ridiculous, right? I'm a fool for even thinking it. The students who would stand besides me are mostly non-existent. The teacher would say, I know what you're going through. I'll cover it next semester. A dream deferred to six months later, but soon later becomes forever. What did that, when you first read that, what this was read? What, what was your reaction when you first read that poem or heard that poem? He gave it to me, um, you know, and we were celebrating his graduation that year. And I said, oh, we'll have a table and we'll display some of your poetry. Could you give me a poem? And when he gave it to me, I was so moved. But then he had written poems before this, you know, and I saw bits and pieces. And I said, is this true of your experience? And he said, yes, that is true. You know, they skim over the, uh, you know, slavery, the topics that are somewhat taboo or somewhat, you know, um, yeah, uncomfortable in mainstream. Um, They just skim over that. And, you know, the true history just isn't explored. And he was, you know, he slowly he realized that, you know, he realized that people just find it so uncomfortable to talk about race. Yeah. Yeah. And slavery. Yeah. And so when you think about the 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 sort of contrasting parts of Maasai and and who he was and the different things he was carrying inside of him, the joy and the insatiable curiosity and interest in life, and also this part of him that felt so unseen in the context that he was living in. Is that when you think about why he had to leave us, is that, do you think, do you attribute that to the fact that he just couldn't reconcile those two things? What do you attribute this loss to, Anna? How do we make sense of this loss? There was a diary that was found and um, I have not yet released to the public or will not, I don't see when or how I can, but most of the writings towards the end there, four months of journaling each day, it talked about race on campus, the political scene. You know, you had, uh, you're in New York and you're experiencing, you know, some of the biggest contrast. You're either black or white. Yeah. Yeah. It's not San Jose. It's not as diverse as San Jose. And especially this is on Long Island, New York. Yeah. And so so here is someone who has read and studied, you know, a lot of books 
and he was he was a sponge. He would just soak everything up, you know. But his ability to articulate some of his thoughts and put it on paper just blew my mind. You know, as a mother, I was so 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 happy for you know for him to be able to to articulate some of the things that a lot of people were thinking but couldn't write it. You know, right. couldn't in a poem so beautifully. Yeah. yeah. And so um, here was someone. Here was someone who was struggling, just like any other black man who is struggling, and couldn't bear the thought, or couldn't. I guess the loss of hope came about, is because he didn't think. I mean, this was a child who had sprinted what we would normally do, um, you know, throughout our whole life, you know someone who could do recordings, you know, could be in a studio with his friends making music, someone who was a gymnast, an athlete who was talented enough to reach the highest levels in gymnastics, you know, in high school. And he was someone who was, you know, in academia was being groomed for the next professor. You know, his professors were all vying to take him as an assistant for the next two years. And uh, I'll quote the dean. And she was like, I would gladly write a recommendation. Either he was going to graduate school or for wherever he was going. I was looking forward to the day that I would write a recommendation. And someone who was, I'd say, I guess, was exposed enough to the world to know that as soon as he stepped outside of that circle of his colleagues, of his peers, of his friends who didn't know him, they would treat him like a second-rate citizen. God, that makes me cry. I, I just think about what goes into being a mother and raising somebody and pouring all your love and your focus and they blossom and they become this light source. And then something like that and the hopelessness of that realization takes over all the, all the things that you did to lift him and the world got in the way. And I, you know, just from a mother to a mother, I admire your ability to make meaning of this and move forward with it. But you must be furious. You must be rage-filled at this point. How do you feel at this point when you think about that? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. I went through all of it. I was in shock, disbelief at first. was angry. You know, I've been through the motions of being angry and just depressed. For six months, I couldn't do anything. I had given up. Here is a son who I had poured, both sons, and I had given a chance to be exposed to everything around us, from ice skating to, you know, hiking to, you know, uh, music, the world of music, the world of art, you know, the plays, everything around you. And here was someone who we thought we would prepare for the world you know, to live and to to fly, you know, to blossom, to, and then he did, you know, he, he just had this deep, deep, dark part of his life, this demon that he couldn't, that he fought and lost the battle to. Yeah. 
And as mothers, you want to step in. And if I had known, if I had known that he was struggling as much as he was doing that last semester, I would have sought professional help. Yeah. I know that it's, you know, I know my limits as a mother. Yes. And I knew. And I think one of the things that I was angry for a long time was that I had specifically asked him. Every time, you know, each year he would come home for summer. Did you need someone to talk to? Did you? We were, you know, a close-knit family that had um, four years prior, um, you know, found ourselves with me being a single mom. And just, you know, I knew my limits as a mother. Professionally, I knew these were Black sons I was raising and boys don't tell their mother everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, just a way of, um, you know, venting to someone it was very difficult to find black professionals to talk to, especially oh, here. Sure. Yeah. And I looked high and low for uh, my other son who was actually uh, doing a lot of counseling at this time. Yeah. And so part of that anger was directed at, I had specifically asked you, can you speak to someone or can we get help? Yeah. And he would laugh it off, you know, and I think this was a son who knew that he always overcame whatever, you know, came to him, you know, he, he worked at it and he made sure that he, um, you know, achieved the, the goal, which is mostly positive in the end. Yeah. But this time around the battle was lost and it was a deep loss. Yeah. The deepest. Yeah. So, so Anna, then take us to, you know, six months ago when you went to a march. Take us to that day where things shifted. Yes. I had just heard of George Floyd and um, I s- told myself I'd delay watching that replay on the news. I wouldn't turn the news on and I. Uh, and I saw it streaming online and I, I delayed playing it. I think I did that Saturday, Sunday, Sunday at the latest. I finally got to play the video. And as soon as the video was over, I walked into the room and just cried the same day. It's the same way that I found my son because I knew every mother's pain, the image, whatever he was going through, that could be my son. I have one son. That could be my son. And the pain cut right through to the same day that I found my other son. Yeah. And so I opened a box. I opened a box of uh, writings that um, my son and his friends had found a week after the funeral. And it was essays, it was poems, about a hundred or so poems, poetry, and yeah, and um, and his journal. And I started, because I had closed the box and put it away after I printed it, and said when my heart was a little healed, I will read every page. But I needed to, I was grieving not only for my sons, but for all the sons out there. 
who may, you know, be who may come across this, you know, who may encounter the same racism, the same, you know, same treatment by the police officers. And I um, started to read and I tried for a whole throughout the rest of the weekend. And on Monday, I was so sick and I was just deeply, deeply grieved at the loss. It was like relieving my own loss. And so I, my sister had called and she had said that, um, oh, there's a march on Wednesday. Would you like to join me? And I said, yeah, maybe I will. And I truly, truly realized that if my son was here, he would be the voice. He would be the next voice. This is a, a group of, you know, the next generation are the voices that we're going to turn to. They are going to be the catalysts in this movement for uh, racism, yeah, to fight racism. And so I walked along with her, you know, and started here in Los Gatos Boulevard. And uh, and once again, we're, we were probably one of five Black people in a sea of about 800 to 1,000 white students and their families, you know, yeah. those high schools that came together with Los Gatos. And as I heard the different chants, I started to cry. You know, they were calling out the names and calling out the, you know, the different chants and songs that they were singing all the way down to the green. And when I stood there at the end of the march, I asked my sister, what were they doing? You know, what's happening now? And she said, I think they're going to have speeches. And I said, would you just wait here? And this is, we're at the end, you know, and, and we're one of the last peoples to arrive. And she says, sure. And I walk right up to the organizers. <laughs> you know, something pushed me that day. Something pushed me. And I just walked up and I said, I have a poem. And I carried my son's poem in my back pocket while we were marching. And it's about diet racist. And I said, I would like to read my son's poem. Could you read us that poem, Anna? Yes, I will. It's called Diet Racist. And this was written the year before he died. And um, I, um, this was one of the poems that spoke to me about racism. There were others that he did write. And uh, this poem was penned in 2017, a year before he had died. And he, he was taking a race and philosophy class. He was taking uh, different classes on campus around racism. And he penned this poem, a list of convenient answers. And uh, by Messiah Jones, I don't see race. I treat all people the same is a convenient answer. It allows the majority to ignore racism and keep the moral high ground. I'm okay with immigrants, but not illegal immigrants is a convenient answer. It forgets that this country was founded by illegal immigrants who tortured, raped, and killed the legal residents of America, Native Americans, which is classic European colonialism. All lives matter is a convenient answer. It dilutes Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is the ebony outcry to Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, and any other victim in this vicious cycle that All Lives Matter tries to cover up. But I can't be racist. My best friend is Black, is a convenient answer. But I'm sorry to be the one to break the news. You can still be racist, 
just no one takes the time out to call you out because we've all heard the same excuses, catchphrases, and convenient answers that only a diet racist would give. So powerful. So you read that out into a crowd. You had no idea you were going to do that. And what did that feel like for you? How did it feel? Especially given that your audience was almost predominantly white. 99% white, yes. And I took the mic. The interesting thing was I don't know what was pushing me to walk up to this crowd that I'd never seen, organizers that I've never met. And they were mostly high school kids. There was high school kids that ran the march. And I said, you know, I'd like to read the poem. And they were having problems with their mic earlier. And um, somehow the system wasn't working and people kept telling them, uh, we can't hear you. You know, there's about 800 to 1,000 people on the green. And it was one of the largest marches in Los Gatos. And when I took the mic, it was like everyone had stopped to listen because I told my story and I opened the the opening dialogue that I had with the audience was I am a black mom and I am a mother of two black sons. I had two black sons. I want you to remember that I had two black sons. And I explained that my sons were raised in this valley. Their friends and their families are from this town. Their friends and families in their circles, they always ran in and around Los Gatos, Willowglen, San Jose. This was the place, this was the areas that they, they visited our families we had dinners with. And I went on to explain that we raised our sons who chose to do gymnastics and ice hockey, two of the sports that were predominantly white. Yeah. And we send them off to, you know, high school where it was also predominantly white. Their piano recitals were in the same town. I remember doing that for about seven years at the churches locally. And we were preparing our sons for the world outside. This was the foundation that we were preparing them for. It may have been a bubble, a bubble that uh, we thought that if we gave them enough or we thought that if we you know, exposed them to enough, they would be ready for the world outside. And I told them that, remember I had said that I had two sons and two years ago to that week, almost two years ago to that week, I lost my son, my oldest son, to suicide, not too far from the town. And in his writings, a week after he was dead, he had died, we had found mostly the writings on racism, essays on racism, and how he knew that no matter how high he rose in academia, or no matter how good he was a businessman, you know, or in business, he was still a black man. And he would always be judged for the color of his skin. And I also encouraged him to listen to the poem. And this is the poem that he wrote. 
When I read the poem and this was, no one moved, but after every, and I, I don't know where I got the strength to speak. I don't know what pushed me to ask them to speak, but I felt my son with me. I feel him each time I share my story and the poem. Yeah. So there's this moment in front of this crowd where you feel compelled, you share his voice, you share your story. I'm sure you could hear a pin drop in that audience while you were speaking. And then you continued. It became a new dimension of your life, it sounds like. You continued a line of activism in your own way. Where has that taken you? What is your focus now? I was shocked to the to hear them shouting at the end and applause, standing ovation. And there was a standing ovation and applause each time. I read the poem so slowly because after each stanza, I knew that there was a new theme to each one, you know, you can, my friend, you know, illegal immigrants, and I would stop after and just taking in yes. response yes. as I read each one and it, and watching the mothers in front of me, just drying their eyes and some of the, you know, the audience just moved to the core yeah. about my story Yes. As a black mom, you know, mother of two black sons. Yeah. And just feeling, you know, when you're talking on the large stage, you don't really come off of that high, I guess, until, (laughs) I don't know, it lasted through the night. But when I started to walk off the stage or off the green, the center green and to the side, I had three or four people chase after me. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, the one, the lady that reached out to me was an NBC reporter. And she said, can I interview you? And I said, and I thought that she was with the school. And I said, sure, you're more than, you know, welcome to interview me. And I said, is this for the Los Gatos, you know, um, you know, Chronicle or something? And she said, no, I'm with NBC. And I said, well, I didn't see the mic in front of me, the guy that was, there was several cameras in front of me, but I didn't, you know, didn't pay attention to them. And so the NBC aired my story or the, uh, that after that evening for the local news. And there was two or three other people that had asked me, I spoke at that March and Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you went from never having, you know, other than your, you know, your son's funeral, I'm guessing you, you went from never really telling that whole story to a crowd to suddenly telling it multiple days in a row. It sounds like. I had never said the word suicide. I had never, I had never told anyone out loud that my son had died of suicide. And when I tell that part, you can just hear the pin drop and people cry as I stop and pause to take that in too, because it, it was a big step for me. And that first time I came home that night, I cried all night. And I said, even though I said yes to everyone for the rest of the week, I said, no, 
this isn't me. This is not my job. This is some other mom's job, you know, some other, you know, so story out there that's more compelling than mine. But I went on to, and it took me about two weeks to finally accept. Um, and I was at this point uh, presenting, or I was talking at least two or three marches a week up until oh. August. Yeah. August where I was still doing this. So Anna, you go from these, you know, from not telling the story at all to telling the story a lot because you're now part of a movement. You're now, you know, culture changes. I am convinced when we hear each other's stories and we stop seeing people as statistics or others and we start seeing them as mothers, as children, as each other. But then you started to get involved with sort of getting into the heart of curriculum, right? And how... American history is taught. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is a new concept for me, and I think it's really brilliant. I um, aligned myself with different groups. You know, I had met so many different groups. There's tent heroes. There's the you know spaces. You know, there's um, the Los Gatos Coalition, anti-racism groups. There were so many groups that I had come into contact with, and each of them surprisingly were led by high school students. You know, I had only, yeah, all the marches, I think out of the 15 plus marches that I went to, maybe only one or two were adults. Adults in the sense that they were, you know, they were mid thirties or forties. The rest were all college age students and high school students. Yeah. And so I looked to them for hope. You know, they gave me courage and they gave me hope and they they all circled me, you know, and I and I said, you know, if I'm going to make an impact, I need to be able to join forces with these teenage with these practically teenage high school kids and college kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. And I tried, you know, sitting in on different meetings And then there was education had always been, you know, big for as parents. We knew that we need to educate our sons. We needed to give them as much reading material, tell them the unfiltered, the, you know, the ones that are not found in textbooks. Discuss about that race, you know, um, how it was before in colonial times pre-colonial and, you know, even as the United States were forming, just just a history, not only about history of the U.S., but history of the world, too. Yeah. Different empires and stuff. And so I wanted to sit or to work with students that were more aligned with, you know, influencing curriculum. And the first organizers at the Los Gatos marches were uh, students and we got to talking about curriculum in their own schools. And one of the reasons we had chosen the high school for our sons was that they did electives in their junior and senior year that focused on different uh, publications of different African-American authors. You know, they had August Wilson seminars, you know, and uh, that was a big, you know, that was a big seller for us. You know, we were like, OK, if you're going to be exposed to this, this is the only school that does this as progressive as it sounds. You know, this is the Holy School that does this with, you know, dedicating at least a whole semester of studying the works of black artists or black writers. And I knew that if we could change the, the curriculum, if we could influence curriculum, this would be the way to go. So I sat on the board or on the uh, team for Los Gatos Anti-Racism 
and knew that if we could, you know, help them, the students find, put out the, uh, I guess, the requests to discuss more than what was being taught in classes, then we would have a winner. And then the bills, of course, with the AB, uh, I I forget which of the assembly bills for both colleges and high schools that were passed. I I heavily promoted it, told all my friends, family, anyone, the circle that I was growing that, um, you know, we need to put in our efforts or we needed to be able to have our voices heard. Because it's it sounds to me like it makes so much sense because when I think about how I was raised, I don't I can't speak to what your experience was, but I mean I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and all of history, all of it was white European male centric, period. And maybe the white women got a little, you know, a bone thrown to them. But when I grew up, there was no Black History Month. There was nothing. I mean, it was like it was entire populations were just straight up invisible. And so when and it sounds like that might have been your experience, too. When you think about making change, radical change toward equality, what do you what do you think is like the biggest argument in favor of diversifying how we study history? What impact what would that do for young black boys and girls to be reading about their heroes throughout the year instead of in the month of Black History Month, February, right? Yes. Or whatever it is. Yes. What, what, what yes. do you think that means to children of color? Not only for children of color, but for all children. You yes. know, you children aren't, uh, you know, there has been extensive studies or, you know, video clips that I've seen recently. Racism is not something a child is born with. They have to be able, they're constantly, you know, there's conversations around it. There's in response to different things that's happening around you. You know, this is the way they were raised. Their grandfathers, their grandmothers, their mothers and fathers pass on their own views or their own beliefs about what it's like to treat or how to treat other people. And what we have here is for young black children is a pride, the invisibility, you are no longer invisible, you know, and it's, you are now, you are part of something, a legacy that was not as beautiful as, you know, as you would think history that is, comes from a lot of pain and a lot of loss but to be able to learn about it, they obviously know about it, but but to have everyone around them actually empathize with them or listen, learning to listen to what they're going through. Because the stereotypes that we have aren't, that's, you know, it, it is, it's debilitating. When I look at it, I say it's, it's, it's a sickness. It is a sickness. It is, you know, I see it as a disease. Yes. Treat someone the way, that way for the, just because of their, the color of their skin, you know, and to, and and I love, love Elizabeth Isabel Wilkerson's uh, book Mm. on caste. Mm, Yes. Uh, You know, and she addresses the fact that in order for us to move forward, we need to understand the history of our country. 
through an unfiltered history. Once we understand that as a nation, as young children, as adults, and as a nation, we will be able to come to terms with what we need to do in order to heal or in order to move forward. Well, I can't think of a better way to end than on that note. And Anna, I just want to say thank you so much for being willing to revisit these moments, the the lowest of the low, the highest of the highs. I mean, you know, the work you're doing is such emotional labor. And uh, on, you know, I just, I'm really grateful that people like you have the courage to tell the story and to show up and be visible because God knows we need it. You know, and it's, it's my story, but it's every mother's story who may have or may not have the same experiences, but every mother resonates with this story. And, uh, you know, and it's that pain and that loss that keeps them captivated and hopefully tells them that, you know, this is, you know, we, we have to be able to change and change starts with us. It starts with the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And God bless you. And I can't wait to see where you take this next. Thank you. Isn't she amazing? I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed by my ignorance on so many things, let me tell you. But specifically, I'm embarrassed about my ignorance on the topic of ethnic studies and how the lack of information and storytelling in our history classes as children affects our children. In fact, after this conversation, it really made me question why we call it ethnic studies to begin with. I mean, it's the story of America. It's the story of the world. It's simply the truth about who we are and where we come from. Why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we want our children to see themselves in the heroes and heroines of history? Why do we have to wait for Hollywood to make a film about black women mathematicians before we knew their names? But there is some positive news to report on this issue. And huge shout outs to my intern, Jaslyn Venkatea, for educating me on this. Beginning in the fall of 2021, every student beginning their journey at a California state university will be required to complete a three-unit course in ethnic studies as part of their baccalaureate degree. Here, here, California. According to the CSU website, quote, these courses can encompass one or more of the four traditional ethnic studies groups of Native Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latino and Latina Americans, end quote. If you're interested in making a difference, talk to the leadership at your school. Find out how you can get involved in creating change in the curriculum. Our stories have power. And what is history, if not a collection of stories that inspire us, educate us, caution us? I am profoundly grateful to Anna for sharing Masai's story with us. And Masai, if you're out there listening from the other side, your mom is doing some pretty incredible work down here and we loved your poem. And we're going to do what we can to make the path easier and brighter for everyone that comes up behind you. And to you, my dear listener, thank you as always for the gift of your time. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit subscribe so you can get the latest episodes delivered hot off the press. Or if you think of someone who could really use this message, share it with them. Also, 
If you're looking to take this further and go further and faster on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And on Monday mornings, you will receive a communication concept or tip to work with for the week. And on Saturday mornings, you'll receive a short little email with three things I am digging right now. It's just a fun little Saturday morning snippet to get you going. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at BronwynSF and LinkedIn. And if your company or organization needs a high-voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually, I'm your gal. So shoot me a note and let's make some magic happen. Find me at BronwynCommunications.com and shine on. Thank you for listening.